Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, it's good New York. This is Jack Devine, and you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 56,000-plus members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. The American bourgeoisie is waging relentless war against labor, but the working class is organizing and fighting back. Today, we're joined by DSA members Gia Lee and Kevin Prozen from United Federation of Teachers to discuss the history and present of labor struggles in the United States before diving into DSA's strategy to build worker power in the workplace. And first, a brief live reading of the headlines by me. <laughs> uh, Daniel Pantelio, the NYPD officer, who killed Eric Garner in 2014, was finally fired on Monday. NYPD officers have reacted angrily to Pantelio's firing, insisting that cops are now, quote, afraid to put their hands on people, end quote. Patrick Lynch, head of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, called for a work slowdown in response. That's not the type of labor organizing we're going to talk about today. Um, And the nine-member New York State Public Campaign Financing Commission, tasked with developing a system of public finance for state elections, held its first meeting on Wednesday. The nine-member group will also determine whether to end fusion voting, which allows candidates to run on more than one ballot line and gives third parties more influence in elections. The commission was created in this year's state budget as a compromise after legislators failed to create a public campaign finance system for state elections. Uh, And that's the headlines. Our daily headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working uh, Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. Um, and so now we're going to transition into our guest, introduce them, let them tell you their stories about why they're in the movement for socialism. So Gia, why don't you start? What uh, pushed you into the movement for socialism? And like, why did you join DSA specifically? And why is it so critical for socialists to organize in the workplace? Ooh. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me and my colleague Kevin on thank the show. Thank you for coming on. It's a huge honor, um, once again. But uh, ooh, what brought me to this movement? I guess uh, I came to it as an educator before the 2016 elections. So I'm a kind of a pre, you know, <laughs> Trump, <laughs> the, the person who shall not be named <laughs> that I just named. But um, really, when I realized that um, coming into the public education system here in New York City, uh, that there were policies and reforms happening um, that had really critical um, impacts in the classroom, in our work um, with students, um, 
our interactions with our administrators. Um, I came in in 2001 at the advent of No Child Left Behind, and uh, something just didn't feel right. Uh, what we were being asked to do um, felt kind of antithetical to you know why people who go into education go in you know to be nurturers to kind of help support students um, to kind of find their way in the world. Um, instead, we were basically being forced to look at our students as numbers um, in a very highly competitive system. Uh, soon learned that lean production was the name of the game um, in an effort to privatize uh, the public good of public education. And that's kind of when I realized either I was on the brink of uh, quitting teaching until I realized that there were other people like me, other educators who also happened to be socialists, many of them, not all of them, but um, but finding that community of people who were not just going to sit down and take it, um, I think completely rocked and changed my world. Um, and I think that when others realize that we do not have to succumb to a system of competition, um, we can find our collective power um, to make the working conditions and our students' learning conditions, you know, uh, what it needs to be. Um, for the greater good, for the common good. Um, and so that's just that, you know, my response in a, in a snippet, but yeah. I think like what you're highlighting there and like, mm -hmm. I feel like our, maybe our repeat listeners may have heard me say this before, but it's in a sense like what happens so often and why people get involved in the movement is that like they, there's something going on in their particular, their mm -hmm. particular experience. And they say like, why this doesn't really match up with what I was told, like the ideals of either our society or like the specific role you're serving as an educator, your the classroom. It seems like it should be a safe space from exploitation and domination and it should be for the serving entrance of the kids so they can actually like educate themselves and in a sense like liberate themselves mm -hmm. but that the classroom is not a safe space from right. capitalism yeah. and that capitalism and the the its representatives in the state were attacking children essentially and teachers um attacking that collective so they could derive more profit right. from that and that that experience is radicalizing but only if there is a movement around rather than despair seeing hope in collective action seeing other you know recognizing that other people feel the same way and you want to unite with them to change it and that that is a real possibility um so kevin i guess the same questions for you or if you want to introduce yourself in another way feel free <laughs> sure i mean i came to the socialist movement a while ago um i joined um uh, a socialist organization in college. So for me, that was in the early 2000s. So the first George W. Bush administration. Uh, and of course, what was happening at that time was the rapid escalation of the U.S.'s war in Iraq. Um, and I got very involved uh, as a student in the uh, movement against the Iraq war. Um, many of the activists that I was meeting at the time uh, also, we're doing organizing around a local strike that was happening. I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin. And uh, about an hour's drive away from where I went to college in Madison, there was a strike by workers at a Tyson chicken plant. Uh, and they had been on strike for months. Uh, and I started joining up with the strike committee, and we would drive uh, out into the this small rural town in um, 
where workers at 5 or 6 a.m. were standing on a freezing cold picket line, and you could see the boss bringing replacement workers, uh, you know, scabs in uh, across the picket line. Uh, and these were workers who had, you know, these were tough jobs. I mean, I met a guy in that picket line who'd lost uh, his hand in a machine. Uh, these were people who had sacrificed a lot for this uh, company and uh, basically were being given an ultimatum that uh, their jobs were going to leave uh, and the uh, factory that had anchored this community was going to just be uprooted. So uh, that uh, led me to kind of bigger conclusions, uh, seeing on the one hand these big imperialist kind of drives uh, that the system had that protest wasn't stopping. And also seeing the way that uh, domestically workers were being pitted against each other in competition uh, to see the enormous power that capital had over people um, like sort of motivated me to, to give my life to a cause that was about, um, about overcoming those forces. And so I've been involved in uh, the socialist movement for a long time. Um, I came to teaching because I saw the profession as one where uh, those ideals, those kind of democratic ideals could be lived out. Um, you know, a job that put me in touch with youth um, and a job that was, you know, centered on ideas. And, and, and you know, uh, when you get into the classroom, like Gia described, you quickly find that there's a lot of imperatives that make it hard to really have those deep conversations um, and that education is run according to the same efficiency logic that uh, business in general is run by. Um, the other thing that attracted me to get to our conversation today was that teachers had uh, something unique to me, which was they had unions, and therefore they had a political voice that wouldn't have been available uh, had I gotten involved in a profession that didn't have that kind of organization. And so that was another thing that appealed to me was it was a, an empowered profession or it could be an empowered profession because teachers had uh, organization. In both like the, the most violent spectacle of capitalist society, the, something like the invasion of the Iraq, the imperial destruction and conquering of an entire society and forcing it to collapse, as well as like the very particular experience you had with that like small number of workers who were fighting against these broader international forces. It, it's, it's very fascinating how like both of those things come together as in a consciousness raising moment. And together, those conceptions, along with like both of your being teachers and talking about public schools, always brings it to mind to me as like, uh, I guess, like an inspiring intellectual or whatever. Um, W.E. Du Bois, in particular, Black Reconstruction in America. And there's one really eloquent chapter that he writes on like the revolutionary transformation that public schools in the South had and how um, the recently emancipated slaves were so critical in developing public schools in opposition to the landowning classes and oftentimes also to the the propertyless white population as well. Um, and that sort of those racial dynamics are definitely something I want to um, touch on going forward. But also what's so profound about Du Bois's work, Black Reconstruction in America, is that it really highlights, I think, what is often kind of um, 
like propagated away by the masters of capital and the um, heads of state. They don't want Americans to really recognize the role that revolutionary labor struggle has had in shaping what is best about living in this country. And that the Civil War and the um, liberation of the slaves, which um, was primarily spurred by slaves themselves orchestrating a general strike, fleeing the plantations, joining the union ranks, and really changing the dynamics in the war was the greatest emancipation of labor in the 19th century. And that so much of how our society is shaped today is determined by that struggle. And then the struggles that were unleashed in its aftermath. And thinking about how after that struggle against uh, slave owners, and then there was a massive struggle in the aftermath of the Civil War between um, the new emergent, like uh, I would say, industrial capitalist ruling class and labor, and that you had both these struggles between capital and labor where you had these massive strikes and people may be unfamiliar with really how widespread strikes were in the uh, late 19th century in the United States, but also how violent the response was from capital and from the state that the National Guard, the police, private militias were sent in to kill striking workers. So I think that legacy and how that's shaped our institutions is something that we really have to think critically about when we're organizing, but also what undermined um, labor from the inside. Because of this legacy and this these entrenched into institutions of white supremacy that were not fully overcome in the Civil War and that Reconstruction was ultimately an unfinished project, that you had these divides within the working class that were able that enabled capital and its representatives in the state to divide the working class against itself. So, gee, I don't know if you want to dive into more of how um, significant that has been in, in you know, creating a challenge for um, you know socialist organizers throughout U.S. history in building a multiracial working class movement to overcome the forces allied against it. I know that's a very big question, so you can take any angle that you want. <laughs> um, you know, I think, so I teach fourth and fifth grade uh, special education at a very progressive public elementary school in the East Village. And um, one of our curriculums that um, we developed is called uh, Justice for All? Question mark. And our students learn the perspectives of the origin of the U.S. through three different perspectives. Uh, the enslaved Africans who were brought over. And we're very careful about language um, to say people are not slaves. They're, they've been enslaved, right? Um, it's something done to them. And then um, indigenous people, the Native Americans, um, and the, the European colonizers. And through that process... Um, you know, we get to this activity called, uh, you know, putting Columbus on trial. And basically, students are asked to weigh all the evidence. Who is the most guilty um, for the death and genocide of Taino's people? And, um, you know, we, that is just at the very root of... Um, what we follow from through history. Like, so we start there, and the students learn that, you know, you can blame the king and queen, queen of Spain. You can um, put blame on Columbus himself. Uh, the ship, you know, the crew members, um, you know, are the Taino themselves someone, you know, somewhat to blame? The kids always come back 
with majority guilt placed on the system of empire, the system of empire itself. And to that end, we look at, okay, the formation of our, of our country. And without that context, that historical context, like, I'm sorry, we're talking not just the U.S., but in other nations that have been colonized and brutalized and that, and, you know, that involved the brutalization of certain groups of people. Um, you know, without that context, you, I don't know how we could possibly move forward uh, with some kind of labor movement um, and to develop common understandings without doing that analysis and having that analysis. And I feel so fortunate to be in a place where, you know, I can work with eight to 10 year olds to develop that together. And I think that um, part of liberated, you know, liberatory education should be for students to have that critical lens at a young age um, to undo the systemic racism because there's so much, um, you know, in our teachings of history that are wrong um, throughout the country. So in order for us to be able to move forward, to be able to be able to collectivize, we need to have that because I think, honestly, for me and I, you know, people I speak to, if we don't centralize um, the issue of the racial breakdown and we see how historically immigrants have been pitted against each other um, in labor, you know, you see it now. Look, these people are going to take your jobs. Um, we have to close the borders. Um, who who are those people? And every at every you know phase in history, there's always been some group, um, and that yeah, that has to be part of our our own education as socialists, as uh, organizers, as people who believe in the rank and file strategy. It sounds like such like an incredible effort of political education within the classroom. And it's, it's one, it's like a collective project, the fact that you're opening up for the students to determine themselves, like who is the most to blame and that they're drawn, that like they have the capacity, that they are so capable if they see the actual facts on the ground of like understanding that it's these forces of empire and capital that the, the desire to dominate other people is spurred like from these economic roots that in turn like create these very violent um, systems of control and order and that they can draw these conclusions is such an encouraging sign in a certain way and shows how important it is to develop like collective programs of political education and then just like centering how like both like settler colonialism and the African slave trade and like domestic slavery in its continuance mm -hmm. have been so critical to how this country operates as a whole and it's impossible to separate the capitalism that we live in now from its historical roots that it it developed and emerged through these forces but there's also has been these these movements that have fought back and made gains too and i think that's like always such an important thing to recognize that there's been strategies and labor organizing and anti-racist organizing and immigrant justice organizing um a feminist organizing that has really built like power and i think it's so both important to 
examine the roots of the problem and then also interrogate like, okay, so how did people fight back? How did they organize? And what were like the best strategies to go about it? Um, And Kevin, I know one thing that you were hoping to mention is how like the rank and file strategy throughout labor history has been so crucial in fighting back against um, capital. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the kind of like traditional socialist view of uh, capitalism and how it brings workers together is that it does two things, right? It brings us together into workplaces uh, with um, little regard for who it throws together, right? So workplaces are actually where people are uh, at the most integrated, right, often in American society. And yet the work, uh, the dynamics of the capitalist labor market pit workers against each other in competition, like Gia was saying. Right. And so those uh, there's nothing natural about solidarity. There's nothing that arises just from the fact that we're all brought together to work. Right. It's something that has to be built through organization. Um, So the rank and file strategy is historically uh, the approach the socialist movement has taken to the labor movement to try to develop those kind of strong workers movements that can cut across those ordinary lines of division that cut the working class up into different competing sectors and try to build a movement that can unite everyone around uh, common interests. Uh, So one thing to say is that when we talk about the rank-and-file strategy, uh, they didn't need a special name for it uh, back in the 19th century or the early 20th century because the socialist movement was a movement of the working class. It was a movement of the rank-and-file. Uh, Its activists came directly from the working class. Uh, Its ideas arose from their experiences. Uh, And it was socialists that led the labor movement uh, all through that period, right? Uh, It was uh, socialists and communists who led uh, the construction of the CIO in the 1930s. Uh, We all talk about that period of the mid-30s and the Great Depression, but actually there were some of the largest strikes in American history happened right after the Second World War in the mid-1940s. And what I think happened was uh, the business interests in this country realized they had to do something to put a leash on the American labor movement and restore profitability because after the Second World War, they had a global system that they had come out on top of. And uh, it was important to domesticate the labor movement in order to ensure that you would have an American century after that. So what did they do? There was a a sort of two-pronged approach. There were carrots and sticks. On the one hand, uh, you had to offer the labor unions something. And so there was essentially a a deal struck, which uh, is summed up by something called the Treaty of Detroit, which I think was signed in 1950. Check me on that. But um, it basically said, look, um, we'll we'll put a a lid on a lot of these uh, strikes the workers are going on. Uh, We'll tone it down. We will cede to management the right to decide what happens at work and how it's done. And in exchange, uh, we will get a steady wage increases if your company keeps getting more productive. So that creates a a system uh, that is increasingly hierarchical and bureaucratic, right? These insurgent unions of the 1930s, they were organized by workers on the shop floor, right? And what happens through the construction of the, uh, well, first the merger of the two previous labor um, networks, the AFL and the CIO, into one big uh, labor coalition, Uh, contracts like the Treaty of Detroit, and also um, 
these kind of uh, arbitrated uh, bureaucratic grievance procedures that would take the resolution of workers' issues out of their hands on the shop floor. These would no longer be resolved by workers collectively organizing to withhold their labor, but they would be sort of processed in a kind of legalistic system that was created uh, that happened sort of above the workers' heads. <clears throat> so that's the kind of incentives. Uh, the corollary to that was a very repressive attack on the socialists that have been the main organizers of those unions up to that point. So you have the Taft-Hartley Act, you have the Smith Act that were designed to basically drum socialists and communists out of the labor movement. Uh, people are familiar with the history of McCarthyism, and you have a radical separation of, uh, of basically the conscious socialist militants from the working class. And with the new left in the 1960s, by that time you find you have a left that's mostly concentrated, a political left that's mostly concentrated on university campuses, largely cut off from a labor movement that was by that time being led by uh, sort of highly paid and very conservative uh, bureaucracy that had interests that were distinct from the workers. And so you had you know, labor leaders like George Meany, who was supporting the Vietnam War, uh, and you had uh, trade unions that were uh, reinforcing segregation within their trades and so on, and you had essentially a conservative approach that was institutionalized at the top of the unions, um, and the rank-and-file strategy was designed to uh, reconcile that situation, to, to reconnect socialist ideas with the working class base uh, that they uh, that is their natural home uh, so it arises in the late 60s and the early 70s i've been talking a while I'm almost done but at that point that original treaty that we talked about was starting to break down american companies had new competition from restored german and japanese economies that had been rebuilt after the war and in response to that competition they began to take back from a labor movement that was no longer able to fight back. Yeah, I, I think so. What's so critical about what you're mentioning is the way that the the movement itself was almost integrated, at least the bureaucracy into, if not the ruling class, at least an appendage of it. And that so much also, I think, what's really critical is the, the way that so much production in the U.S. became geared around like imperial expansion mm -hmm. and how there was a huge tie in the mass production apparatus to the military industrial complex, which created incentives for the labor movement to become more tied into militarist production, which created kind of a more conservative ideology. Um, and I'd like to continue about how we got where we are now. But first, I just want to remind our listeners that you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI and New York City broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that at our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking about the labor movement and DSA's strategy to build power in the workplace. Um, and I think like before what we were just talking about, where we got to where we were in the 70s and 80s, and you'd also, because of this massive post-war expansion, you'd kind of created... What I would say is almost like this um, 
not like labor aristocracy is a term that's thrown around, but you had a privileged working class in the United States that had developed almost some at least sectors of it that had developed almost some like petty bourgeois consumption habits in the sense that they owned property and housing and they were primarily interested in consuming more rather than building power in the workplace, which was part was a byproduct of a campaign orchestrated by the ruling class to divide the working class against itself and um, against uh, revolutionary movements abroad. Uh, and then so what you have emerge at the end of the 70s and 80s is this new conservative political coalition that is whipped into a social Darwinian throth by um, Reagan's like very dog whistly coded racism. Um, which further serves to demonize people living in the cities who are typically people of color and at the same time waging a relentless campaign against unions. And I think the, the turning point that's often referred to is the firing of the striking air traffic control workers. Um, and then since that time, you've had a massive decline in the rate of unionization and direct action taken um, by the labor movement and an even further push of uh, elements of labor, particularly like the bureaucracy that we're talking about, into the Democratic Party, into compromising and negotiations that has only further accelerated its decline um, until we've gotten to where we are right now. Before we get to where we are right now, is there anything you'd like to add to the story I just presented? <laughs> well, just one thing, which is uh, by the end of the 60s, it's I don't really – it is true that workers had things like property and everything. A lot of those things also came out of things like the GI Bill, which were uh, obviously racially segregated programs, and that did foster a lot of these divisions you're talking about. I think one important thing that happens in the labor movement in the late 60s and the early 70s is you have workers that have been radicalized by experiences they had away from the workplace in the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the anti-war movement. And you have a new generation of workers that are going into the workplace uh, with those uh, experiences in mind, with the kind of anti-authoritarian attitudes that those experiences instilled in them. Um, but also with many of them with a kind of uh, socialist political agenda. So you have uh, socialists of many different stripes in the late 60s and early 70s who implement what we now call the rank-and-file strategy, one way or another, right? Where they take a turn towards what they thought were important industries because they saw on the horizon uh, an increase in workers' organization and workers' struggle. And that did happen. In a lot of unions, this is where you have uh, a lot of uh, rank-and-file rebellions, wildcat strikes, and things like that that emerge in the late 60s and early 70s. And it really did look to people at that time. you got to remember how, uh, you know, tense American society was. I mean, I wasn't alive then, but, you know, when you think about the Nixon era, how tense and violent America was, it really did seem to people that there was some sort of revolutionary crisis uh, on the horizon. So they enter the workplace, but what happens is exactly what you're saying, which is they enter at a time when, in response to the crisis of profitability, business goes on the offensive. They say, we're going to make, uh, we're gonna do, make workers more productive, we're going to make them work harder, we're going to squeeze more out of each individual worker, and we're going to have fewer, fewer of them employed. We're going to, uh, that is the process of lean production that Gia mentioned at the beginning, right? We're going to get more out of fewer workers. So in response to that, 
increased competition, there's increased speed up. Workers' jobs become harder. And it's that direct experience of being squeezed harder that is what drives this rebellion among rank-and-file workers at that time. And I think that that kind of speed up, that squeezing of workers, is part of what explains why we're seeing these rebellions among specific sectors now, like teachers and nurses, who are being asked to do more with less. So in Los Angeles, uh, Gia, what were the class sizes there in the most recent contract they wanted? It was like 40 or something. Yeah, it it was something really ridiculous. So it's getting more out of fewer people. And people feeling that squeeze and feeling the economic stagnation of not having experienced real wage growth in so long is part of why certain sectors of workers are are rebelling in the way they are now. Yeah, and I think at the same time you're talking about this increased um, intensity from the bosses, that it's no coincidence that's also the same time that the police state and the incarceral state emerges and is really disciplining people who are considered like surplus population to the capitalist production apparatus, that these people must be punished and that if they're not serving the interests of capital, then they are not human beings in a, a certain way. And that we've and we've seen and teachers are and nurses are people that have had to pick up the pieces of this sort of crumbling social fra- fabric mm-hmm. outside of these isolated mm-hmm. hyper wealthy areas. Mm-hmm. And that there's been so much pressure put on these people and they and they're also at the same time been forced to do more spending on themselves and their own social reproduction. They become more in debt because you have to get higher training and schools become more expensive. So you're having this kind of learning process. You're becoming uh, like you're getting educated with like the tools uh, that you learn in a university space, but then you're not really receiving the upward mobility that you're promised when you're investing in those sort of um, infrastructural educational tools. So you have this kind of massive class of people who are like organized like not as you're saying they're not like there's no like clear solidarity that's just there automatically but you've had all these forces that have constantly been attacking people and batting them down and really shattering any illusion of american dream that has always been like a fraudulent story, but I think there's particular moments where it really bursts the surface about what a lie that really is. And I think we're living in one of those moments. And so I think it's um, been incredible seeing um, how you've had this. I mean, it's particularly been in the educational sector where you've seen this rise and strikes, but also as we're seeing right now, like down in the Southeast, you have this incredible strike of over 20,000 communication workers Mm -hmm. in a region of the country that is the most hostile to labor, not just in the U S but arguably in the entire like industrially developed quote unquote world that it is, uh, I mean, you can we could get back to the legacy of slavery we were talking about before, but disciplining labor has always been a huge part in the South. So it's so encouraging seeing that happen right now. But just to, like bring it back to the organizing that happened before these strikes in uh, the teachers unions and how critical that was to unleashing these direct actions in the first place. Mm. Uh, Gia, would you want to add anything to that? Well, like Kevin was saying, you know, it's and you were saying also that people often don't feel compelled to act until there's some you know kind of condition that makes it pretty much you know fight or flight and but i will say that the strikes in the southeast 
in terms of the teacher strikes in West Virginia and places like that, um, Arizona even, uh, what we call red states, um, versus like Los Angeles and some of the blue state strikes, um, they're, they're different in terms of demographics, in terms of history. But um, what I will say is I, I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned that has everything to do with you know, the dream, the American dream. And the idea that you could, you know, you get an education in order to move up in life. Um, we've defined what success means uh, based on your accumulation of wealth and status. Um, I wanted to share a study that was done out of a university in England. I've mentioned it a couple times, but uh, in other places, it's Kate... Wilkinson, uh, actually, sorry, Kate Pickett and Richard Wick Wilkinson, um, they wrote a book on it. It's called The, the Spirit Level. And it's not a spiritual book. It's actually, uh, you know, if you ever use a level to put a picture up or something, it's when there's equilibrium. Um, and the study went in with this idea that poverty is linked to a lot of the social ails that we face. Um, you know, poor achievement in school, um, incarceration, violence, mental health issues, teenage pregnancies, they made a long list. Um, and their hypothesis was actually incorrect. Poverty is not directly correlated to those social ills. It's actually in places in societies where there's a, a gap. So they found a direct correlation between the, the gap, the size of the gap between rich and poor, and uh, the incidences, the higher the incidences and the rates. And they found that like the US and the most capitalist countries have the highest gaps and the highest incidences of all those social ills, right? Um, it speaks to our value set. And education was being framed as a place where we were not closing the gap, right? The achievement gap. Um, the attack went directly on to the teachers in the, in the schools. Basically, the reason why the predominantly black and brown um, and poor communities were not achieving, um, the, the blame was being placed on educators. Despite the fact that for the last 40, 50 years, you saw legislation passed at the you know, state and federal levels um, giving much more power to corporations than individuals in communities. Um, and at the same time, in tandem, stripping away the power of unions, right, to be able to strike. Like in New York State, we have the Taylor Law. Um, so it was really clever of this capitalist class to frame uh, the lack of achievement, the lack of access to success, onto schools to be able to start their then attack on the education budgets of every single state. Um, and I think it's really important that, you know, to, to remember the disproportionality is always who is most impacted um, by, this, by this income gap, you know, is uh, predominantly in black and brown communities. Yeah, and that who owns the wealth is uh, predominantly a close circle of white men and that they, that all workers in this country are exploited and all communities are uh, dealt with violence, but it's black and brown communities in particular who are dealing with the violence of the state that is perpetuated by the inherent exploitation of the system. 
itself. But and but at the same time, this level of labor organizing that is reemerging is very encouraging to see that. Like, and I think it's really important that you mentioned the the distinction between like a strike in West Virginia and Arizona than the ones in Los Angeles were. Um, I remember reading about, and it seemed very clear that like racial justice issues were at the core of how they were able to organize for that strike, how they were able to build momentum in their rank and file strategy within the union and then build community trust outside of it so they could take that action and then win that labor action and build further power. Mm-hmm. And um, so I want to jump into DSA's strategy for a bit before opening the phone lines. But I just want to remind your, our listeners that you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can also find us at Twitter at NYC. RPM. Today, we're talking about um, labor, the rank and file strategy, and why it's so um, critical for socialists to be building power within the labor movement. And I want to, I'm going to remind our listeners that you can call in now at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. But to ask questions about what DSA is doing um, in its labor strategy and what the rank and file strategy is. But before, I want to give you guys the opportunity to both explain what it is and perhaps your personal experience in engaging in it. So uh, DSA, New York City DSA, passed a resolution last year called Resolution 33, which called on socialists to explore uh, taking jobs as rank and file workers in what we called strategic industries. Now, what's a strategic industry? Uh, It's a sector that meets a couple of criteria that we had collectively decided on. Uh, What is the economic power and leverage that workers in this industry potentially have? Uh, Is this a place where if we organize, we'll be able to leverage our organizing to achieve large-scale change? And that's going to require economic leverage, Uh, political leverage, right? The kind of political influence the union has. Uh, What is the internal political culture of the union? Is it a place where rank-and-file workers have a lot of say and influence, or is it a place that is pretty closed off to the independent initiative of the rank-and-file? Is it a place where we have uh, already a concentration of DSA members, like we just happen to have a lot of teachers that have joined DSA, right? It's... uh, you know, a demographic, it's mostly young women. That's uh, a demographic that's politicizing very rapidly, and uh, a lot of them find themselves in DSA, right? So teaching, while the UFT is not the most uh, open union in terms of rank-and-file activity, it is a place where we have a concentration. So nothing's We're not get- outside agitators. That's right. No, I'm, I'm definitely inside the <laughs> New York City school system. It's been, been many a, years. been a while now. <laughs> but, um, but that nothing's going to check all those boxes, but that something's going to check enough of them, right? Uh, and we decided on, uh, I think, uh, six or eight industry. It's uh, teaching, nursing, um, telecom, um, public transit, uh, public sector workers in DC-37, uh, other places that uh, we thought met these criteria for unions with strong economic and political leverage, places we could do realistic organizing, uh, and places that actually provided people sustainable 
jobs. I mean, I think one thing to say is in the 60s and 70s, when socialists attempted this rank and file strategy, uh, because of the separation between the socialist movement that in the new left, which was largely concentrated on universities, uh, and then their uh, gap with the industrial working class, they often found themselves in these sort of absurd situations where kids would graduate from Columbia and then go get a job in like a coal mine or an auto plant or whatever. And it wasn't a sort of natural fit with their life trajectory. And, you know, it's hard to establish credibility with people when you don't share a certain set of life experiences with them, right? Um, you have to work to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And you... Um, so the the industries we've chosen also, I think, are a natural fit for a lot of DSA members. They provide good jobs that are fairly stable in an economy that is, uh, you know, pretty savage and competitive, right? So these are these are, uh, you know, also enticing jobs. I think for the kind of typical DSA member who I find to be kind of a few years out of college, maybe wondering what they can do politically um, and and how their their work life can connect to that. Um, can I just, I'm just going to throw out, you know, just a little bit of reflection on um, the rank and file strategy in terms of, I mean, specifically in education. Um, in New York City, and one of the, it's basically the most segregated school system in, in the country. Um, and that a majority of, you know, DSA members tend to come in who are white. Um, and that we be cautious not to perpetuate um, the very, you know, kind of a, I guess, white supremacy <laughs> um, within our own efforts uh, for a rank and file strategy and undo a lot of, the, you know, the really good work that I will say, you know, have to give credit to, to all the folks who are dedicated to this, but also to be cautious because I remember one of the first um, – books that I read was by Bell Hooks and understanding, you know, by Paulo Freire, the pedagogy of the oppressed, um, that we come in with a uh, cultural consciousness, um, that we're not walking in as saviors and that, um, we go in and, you know, I'm part of the Black Lives Matter at schools, organizing work here in the city. Uh, and you know, one of the central demands are for is to hire more black educators, Students of color need to see educators who look like them, who understand um, their context and their world, uh, and that we be conscious of that in this in this work. I think that's like such a crucial and critical point to make that we're not coming in as savers. Well, many people are already working in these unions and in these jobs, but that the the role of DSA and socialists is not to tell people what to do, but to uh, collectively, through solidarity, lift people up to build, to help, to be part of a process where we all build power together and recognize the real like violence in our society that causes particular communities to suffer under more violence and oppression. Right. We have a caller um, live on WBI, you are on Revolutions Per Minute. What's your name? What's your question or comment? Hi, I'm Scott from Syracuse, New York. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Good. Um, up here, it's the same thing. The schools are very segregated. Um, also near the um, Onondaga na uh, Nation, also, uh, uh, there's a lot of enormous poverty up here. So uh, what me personally, I organize... Uh, I'm a libertarian socialist from below, 
and uh, it's it's a tremendous amount of work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, there's definitely plenty of uh, people in DSA who describe themselves as libertarian socialists and very committed to that dual power um, building model. And also, like up here, Syracuse, also, this, I'm, a, uh, I'm a school teacher and I see enormous, uh, a lot of students come from enormous impoverished backgrounds, whether they be African American or immigrant or First Nation. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure there's a, there's a lot that you have to deal with on that end, and uh, you know the the violence that is produced, um, the poverty in like particular communities that the hyper exploitation they experience, and dealing that with that in the classroom is a real challenge. Yeah. Okay. Well, in solidarity. Solidarity. Thank you for the call. Uh, we have another. Yeah. yeah, we've got another caller live on Revolutions Per Minute. What's your name? What's your question? Well, I, I wanted to, my name, by the way, is Mike, and I just want to uh, third, I guess, the, um, you know, it's one thing to read the, the stats and uh, be told uh, that the New York City schools are incredibly segregated, but it's a different thing to um, be in the classroom and see that. It's a very visceral, you know, student teaching, it's a very visceral, my first experience with it. Um, was intense, and then just you know, in in Brooklyn, for example, just riding uh, a bicycle like to another neighborhood, and it's a completely different um, uh, profile, de- demographic, what have you. Um, but I had a question um, related to as an outsider uh, uh, to DSA, I was able to watch a lot of the live stream, like uh, obviously a lot of other people were. Um, I'd be curious to see if that happens again next year, but. Um, it was open, and um, I was interested. I, what caught me at my eye was a, uh, a vote um, for or against support, officially endorsing sorry, um, the climate strike, which I believe was uh, an amendment to a resolution on the Green New Deal. Now, that, that uh, amendment was, uh, did not pass. I, I don't think it was even close. Uh, the national... Uh, is one level I understand on the DSA, and then there's tensions between the national and the, and the local, and, and, and local uh, chapters can endorse it and put resources behind it. But I wonder how you, uh, as educators, relate to that, because I see the climate strike as being obviously spearheaded by youth um, and, and, and the people who are most affected. So I just would love to hear your your. Um, uh, reactions to that? Any like lesson plans that you have uh, um, planned, or are you excited to kind of ask kids questions about that? And and how do you see your organization on the national level? What its priorities are? I mean, we, we could have a longer discussion about the New Deal and what really restored capitalist profitability, which was World War II. Uh, the New Deal, you know, created a lot of programs and put a lot of uh, people to work for sure. Um, but uh, in terms of saving capitalism from itself. Um, I, that's a, that's a longer conversation about the Green New Deal. Anyway, I, I don't want to get too far afield. Thank you so much for for your time, and and uh, and, and I'll take uh, your answer off air. Well, thank you so much for your comment, your question. I'm guessing this this one is more directed to you guys. <laughs> yeah. So I I teach at a public elementary school called the Earth School, and you can tell by the name of it, <laughs> we're very much um, environmentally centered, and teaching about uh, just the sustainability of life 
on earth is central um, for our students right now. I think we're in a dire situation. Um, time is ticking, and it's not a matter of, you know, do, can we afford to, you know, give a lesson? We must. We must teach our students and our schools, you know, my school's already uh, talking about how we're going to be participating in that climate march. Um, and we have one more caller. That's cool. All right, great. Uh, you are live in Revolutions Per Minute. What's your name and what's your comment or question? Yes, my name is Mateen, and I am a scientist of astronomy. And I'm just calling in to say that um, that it's going to be difficult for us as black people, me being a black man, for us to be successful in this political system or this arena called the United States. Due to the fact that, I'll just use one example, I'll be quick, because time is short. That when you look at Black Wall Street, we had everything as black people. We was thriving, we was happy, and very peaceful. But the same powers that be, that's today in the political arena, are the same people that not only bombed um, Wall Street, but also... They they brung up um, lies that the black man raped the white woman who was an elevated worker in order to start that. So what I'm trying to say is simply this. We still have that same mindset today in the political arena, but it's only worse now because it's with our own people. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for that comment. And I think it's uh, Black Wall Street and the the burning and the violence that with um, the white population there um, unleashed against that experiment is such a um, really critical moment in history and really important for people to understand how um, capitalism and white supremacy um, intersect to um, push out any threat to its um, hierarchical order of domination. And um, before we end the episode, we just um, like to give our listeners a chance to plug into the work um, that our guests are involved in. And if there's anything that you uh, both would like to highlight, any meetings or events coming up, uh, if or refer someone to a calendar or something that might uh, easily connect them with it, <laughs> or <a> website. <laughs> so Kevin and I are both um, part of a caucus within the United Federation of Teachers. So if there are any... Um, New York City public school educators out there who are interested in in um, meeting us with us and you know talking more. Uh, we're part of the movement of rank and file educators. More, um, we have a website, and on September twentieth, we'll have our first general meeting. It'll be listed on the website. You can also follow us on Facebook um, and Instagram. Um, that September twentieth. It's a Friday at five o'clock. And it looks like um, we're confirming, we're firming up the location, but it should be at Project Reach, which is in Chinatown. I don't have the the address on me right now, but um, that's where. And then we usually follow up with some kind of social gathering right afterwards. Uh, the DSA Labor Branch meets every month at uh, UAW on 34th Street. I'm trying to pull up the exact date of the next meeting now, but um, those meetings every other month is an organizer training. So if you are interested in trying to talk to your coworkers about uh, unionizing or getting more active in the union, that's a great place to plug in. Um, and we're discussing in an ongoing way what our work in the rank and file of the unions is going to look like. So we're at the beginnings of creating this strategy. We don't have all the answers. We are kind of making the road by walking it. But if people want to walk it with us, uh, the labor branch is the place to be. 
Well, thank you both so much thank for you. joining us on RPM. This was a really great discussion, and I there's a lot more I want to discuss, the connection between rank and file and um, organizing the unorganized, and there's so much work to be done in the labor movement and the socialist movement, but thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners. You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute, and you'll hear from us next week.